You're about to join Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and Niels Kostrup-Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. Jerry Parker, Moritz Siebert, and I, Niels Kastrolarsen, are back with this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series, where each week we focus on helping you build safer and better performing portfolios by including trend following in the mix, and where we do our very best to answer all of your questions. Good afternoon, Moritz. Good morning to you, Jerry. It's uh, The reason I say this is in a funny way is because we're recording this on a Friday, which is unusual for us. So I got suddenly a little bit confused what time it was where, where you guys are. Evening here yeah. in Austria. Yeah. Too Eastern here, so. Exactly. Wide awake, um, not having to rely upon the coffee <laughs> as usual. <laughs> Good stuff. Um, I don't know about you guys, but maybe it's just because we're sort of uh, end of a long week, end of uh, end of the day. But it feels like it's been a pretty busy week, uh, you know, in terms of news flow. Um, I don't know. Perhaps it's the chatter and noise we get around the Fed uh, this week and what it's likely to do next, uh, and how much the short-term bills are pricing in in terms of rate cuts now. Um, Of course. A huge amount of global bonds that are now yielding negative interest rates, um, and also I think the the fear is beginning to show in terms of you know is the Fed really heading in the same direction as the ECB and BOJ with negative interest rates, um, and and frankly you know what does that mean to investors where they're going to search for for the yield and and returns and of course the three of us we have you know a good suggestion um, for those uh, who are looking and but in all seriousness. Um, I actually think that trend following could be one of few kind of alternative strategies that will do really well uh, in such an extreme environment, at least on the road to this extreme, if if that happens. But only time will tell. We'll see in the next uh, few years. Um, And uh, maybe this is the period where we have to produce the above average returns that we haven't seen uh, in the last few years. So with all of that in mind, Moritz, you're it's you're in Austria. It's Friday evening. How does how was your week? And markets have almost closed. Yeah, it's been a busy week. Uh, I must say, uh, lots of action in the markets. Uh, interesting week, uh, up about a percent. So that's good. Coming from the bonds, most of it coming from a long gold position, which actually performed tremendously well this week. I think we moved up from you know thirteen twenty, uh, reaching an all time or reaching a new high of fourteen hundred uh, intraday today even. So that position is quite nice to have on at the moment long. Um, some givebacks in in crude oil, uh, given the news on Iran. Um, so I had a short position on there, still short. Um, reduced that short position a bit, but you know, um, the last two days cost some money there. Um, I've mentioned the bonds. I mean, it's kind of like the gift that keeps on giving every week. I'm, I'm almost waiting for the thing to turn, but um, it's like a steamroller, just bonds moving higher and higher and higher. So that makes money. And and currencies, well, chopping around, but um, uh, all in all, a good percent for the week. So I'm happy about that. Yeah, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. Before I jump into um, to how it all panned out for us, I, I wanted to uh, just mention a quote. Um, so completely unstructured today, really, in in my approach here. But but you know, we get these weekly updates from from our good friend uh, George, um, and um, and this week he sent us this uh, update that starts with a quote. 
um, that goes something like this. Most traders miss the point of having a strategy with rules. It's not to find a magical method that works all the time. It's about operating within a certain framework so you know what to expect, good and bad, and how to respond. It's about establishing a circle of competence. And it's apparently a quote from a guy called Mark uh, Minervini, I think is the name. So I thought that was pretty pretty, uh, pretty nice. But back to um, back to this week's action. Um, I mean, it's been an up week for us as well. Not entirely sure where it's going to finish, but I think it's definitely going to finish in the black. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, nice to see that some other markets are pulling their weight, uh, especially in a week where uh, definitely oil was a bit of a challenge. But gold, as you mentioned, Moritz, um, of course, bonds, maybe not today, but certainly this week has been another one of those weeks where you um, saw bonds uh, chip in. Um, and of course, with equities making new all-time highs. And although I would say overall our exposure to equities is not nearly as high as it was uh, last time we made new all-time highs, um, this obviously is still uh, helping. Um, reductions uh, in the acts, of course, with the continued um, you know surge in many of the agricultural markets. So that's also been a challenge, a difficult one, but... Uh, luckily, there's been other things in the portfolio that seems to be um, uh, working really well. So an interesting week uh, on, on many fronts, lots of market movements as well. I mean, crude up 9.6% for the week. A lot of the oil uh, markets up almost similar amounts. Um, uh, and on the downside, I mean, net gas down 8.2% for the week so far. Um, you know, the hawks are down almost 4.5%. Um, the dollar. Uh, having, um, you know, giving back some money. And that's obviously not good for many trend followers, uh, including ourselves. Um, so, yeah, I mean, busy, 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 I would say. What about you, Jerry? Uh, well, it's good week, good month. Um, May was uh, bad. Uh, I do have a com material commitment to the single stocks long, mostly. They're mostly in an uptrend. <clears throat> but uh, so it reversed in June, so that's nice. I was able to stay in those stocks and they're doing pretty well. Um, fun gold. I think it's, I try not to come across. I, most of the time I'm very, I'm hedging myself when I may not sound like it, but I'm trying to hedge myself when I have these strong opinions, quote unquote, because they're not that strong. And I'm trying to not get caught in, in what I know happens, which is whenever you think something is, a relationship or something is set in stone, it's going to change. And I, even though I have said many times crude, platinum, and silver are correlated, I've also tried to say, you know, and then sometimes they're not. Um, silver doubled in 19, a well, silver went up a lot. I don't know if it doubled, but it went up a lot in 1987. And gold kind of sat there. And so we're seeing the same thing with uh, platinum and silver not doing too much. And then gold doing a lot. So that was a fun trade to get on and be on. And hopefully that's a good sign or something, you know, a good trend. And then uh, I really enjoyed being long Bitcoin for a week. And I had like a $900 profit 24 hours later. So it's just really funny that, you know, sometimes things like that do work out for you. So I'm, uh, whatever's going on in the world, I don't have any idea, but I'm, it's kind of fun to watch those two markets go. I'm glad so you mentioned training. that. I forgot my favorite, the Bitcoin, the new Bitcoin. I mean, yeah, that's that's definitely been a, a good 25 basis points this year. So <laughs> you're of, both trading. Out of one uh, position. 
So you're both trading crypto now? Yeah, there's no reason not to. I read an yeah. article today that said uh, as soon as the CBO, CBOE decided to close their, shut down their contract, the CME got record volume, record open, yeah. record open interest. So, I mean, there's no reason not to. Over the years, I've added so many markets just barely over the threshold of being what I would consider to be liquid. So no reason to discriminate against. I was, like I said uh, a few weeks ago, I was so disappointed Moritz beat me to it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's really high. I mean, that's a hell of a trend at the moment. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, we've seen this thing turn around uh, in no time. I mean, you know, you wouldn't be surprised to see you trading at 8,000 on Monday. I mean, this just can't happen. No, and then, you know, the ATR is large, um, <clears throat> so it's appropriately sized. Um, you know, back in the day in 1984, uh, I made 15% in, for the year and 15% in coffee. And my largest client called me up and said, why did I... Why am I flat for the year and every, all your other clients made 15%? I said, you don't trade coffee. And they said, well, we thought commodities were too volatile. I'm like, yeah, but we sized them inversely to the ATR. Oh, okay. Then trade commodities for me. Yeah. Uh, so that's the same thing. This, you know, the margin is, I think the, our broker said the margin is 150% of what the CME requires. So even these brokerage firms and FCMs, they don't really understand I mean, I look. What's the wildest market we've seen in a month? Corn. Yeah. Oh, okay. Didn't know corn was worse than could be worse than Bitcoin. Yeah, of course it can. All of them can uh, have some crazy action. It has nothing to do with. Uh, I mean, Bitcoin's a little uh, unique, but uh, I'm glad. It's to just be generally, it's just generally volatile. I mean, uh, lean sure. hogs went up seventy five percent earlier this year in one month. So I agree with you. I mean, it's not really that radical um but it's also of course the way it's being portrayed by the press and uh, so on and so forth so yeah i mean good for you guys um i'm sure that it won't be uh, just around the corner for us to jump into that market but uh, i will follow your your entry uh, with a lot of interest uh, mm -hmm. for sure um let's just before we jump into um the tweets i think the tweets have been good this week um and but i do want to just remind people those of you who um, have raised your hand very kindly about the live event we're uh, planning in uh, new york um i mean we would love to wrap up uh, the um you know the uh, allocation of 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 seats, et cetera, et cetera. There's still room, but we need people to uh, who have uh, raised a hand. We need people now to uh, to take the next step and and confirm uh, their um, their interest. So we know um, if we're going to be eight, ten, twelve people, not more than that. So uh, if you wouldn't mind, um, let us know as soon as you can. All right, back to um, the regular program, as they say. Um, tweet this week jerry any particular themes or any particular things that just uh, caught people's attention uh, there were some themes i don't know if I, I don't remember what they were but uh i will in a second once i start reading some of them uh i did something different this week i get a lot of uh, i have a you know a handful of friends uh in the trading world uh including you two guys but uh, these other guys they send me lots of information and we discuss the markets throughout the week and um, George you know of course is our good friend who summarizes what we talk about and sends us a lot of good information and uh, we've hung out together 
And I just started get, uh, saying, I'm going to start copy pasting some of George's uh, emails, <laughs> some of his uh, sentences that he puts in his emails. They're really good and people love them. It's like the most popular ones I've had this week, just off the top of his head, you know, he and I are discussing things and rather than copy pasting from some article, I'm getting a lot of good stuff from my friends. So uh, the first one, with, which was the most popular tweet of the week, uh, he says, in studying successful traders, the word consistency pops up a lot. And I think George does actually study traders. Um, they don't change their spots all the time. It's best to develop a relatively simple, robust model that will survive various future realities waiting for the luck to find you. Uh, you know, and whenever I hear something I've never heard before, <clears throat> I really, I really like it. And so, uh, waiting for the luck to find you. I don't even know if I know exactly what he meant by that, but it seemed kind of interesting that, um, <clears throat> you know, I think that um, these systems that we trade, they, um, you've got to follow them. The entry is connected to the exit. Your entry does me no good with my exit. Your better entry or exit than mine does me no good unless I know both the entry and the exit. And it is a waiting game for our parameters or our style to kind of kick in and get our fair share at the right time. That's why discipline is so important. It's really almost a zig and zagging. I, I changed or I, my system didn't work in May, but it's working great in June. And my time, what you know, my parameters are kind of, uh, they will kick in. You will get your day in the sun, uh, but you can't switch too often. And, and I think maybe that's what he means. He's waiting for the luck to find you. And what you need to do is just be there all the time. So when luck shows up, you haven't gone missing. And you will go missing if you make a lot of changes or you're not consistently applying your entry and your exit. I love that. I mean, I think that's very uh, that's very good. And I think, generally speaking, I, I mean, I think luck in in itself um, plays a, a much larger role than than many people will admit to. But what I really like about it is the fact that we actually, on our side, we did a study earlier this year uh, as a consequence of a very difficult 2018 for our industry, and um, because we wanted to try and understand what could be the cause of such a difficult environment for trend followers. So we looked at um, a, diff a trend following methodology very close to our own, but we, we looked at different uh, look back periods. So basically from say 20 days all the way up to almost 300 days, just to see how the distribution of, uh, of uh, you know, which ones would be best uh, each year over the past 28 years. I think we went back to 1990. And actually, I mean, it's surprising to see how much it changes from year to year. I mean, one year it can be 28 days, the next year it's 240 days. That's the best. So I like the what you're saying about, you know, or what George is saying about, you know, when the luck finds you, because Right. I mean, we can't change our parameter combinations every year because we don't know what they're going to be anyways. We have no idea. So we need to find some um, level uh, where we want to be, where we're comfortable. And then obviously from time to time, that's going to be exactly where you want to be. And then I think that's, at least that's how I interpret the uh, what you said about when, when luck finds you, you just got those things right and everything is aligned and, and, and you have a great, great year. I really like that. And I think uh, one of the most important things I heard there is that you do not have to go missing. You know, you have to stay at the table and continue to play. 
think this is this is one of the core problems for many investors is they give up on things and they may like trend following for a couple of years and then they stop using it. You know, we all know that we cannot force our luck. It shows up when it is there, but you have to be there to take advantage of the opportunity. I just want to mention the experiment. Probably you guys know that too. It was, you know, done by Tom Basso, the random entry experiment. Have you heard about that? Uh, no. So he used a trend following system and he says, well, the exit is important. We know the entry is important too, because if you don't make the entry, you're not in a position. But what he wanted to show, and I think he succeeded to show, is that risk management and sizing of positions and having stop losses and, you know, not leaving, not letting losses go unlimited, this is really important. So he was using an experiment. I'm happy to show you guys the paper and send you the link after the podcast um, where he did random entries, right? So kind of like coin flip entries, but he then let them run and he's using trend following methodology. If the trend develops, he has a he's got a trading stop following that all the way through. If it goes into a loss, he stops it out. And this worked, right? But what it shows is that you have to be there when it happens. And and this is, you know, you know, we may be going through a two or three years of difficult times, but um, who knows what hap what happens in the next uh, three months. Maybe good for us. And I'm not even sure uh, luck is the word. I mean, I don't have a problem with luck, but it may be more of a random randomness or just a distribution. You know, it's whatever is happening. It's not a consistent thing in the world or what works is not always going to work all the time. But uh, just waiting for your parameters to kind of be smiled upon, and they will be. And so... That's the danger of making too many changes. We want to evolve. We want. We understand the markets are different, I guess, and then maybe we have to change. Trend following adapts and changes to the fundamentals, but does trend following itself have to adapt and change to market participants? I guess it does, but um, too much change is costly. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, definitely. Okay, well, that's a great start in terms of tweets and all of that um what else showed up in the uh i'll go down the list of uh, most yeah. popular so the next one was uh and since i wasn't here last week I've two weeks oh, yeah. worth you know so sure that's even better yeah um so my friend mark who i read all the time and he is very smart he i'm picking on him a little bit i guess because i sort of nitpicked one of his um uh posts on his blog but um it's the title of it is our momentum models better than moving average models and he sort of left out the fact that uh we i like breakout models uh momentum is this academic approach looking at the returns over the past x amount of months usually 12 months and the ones that are the positive or the most positive uh <clears throat> you go long and the shorts would be the opposite so uh, but i was trying to put forth uh, you know the breakout methodology as something that's preferred and uh, my comment was don't forget breakouts breakouts don't lock in profits as fast as moving averages so that makes them harder to do and probably better uh, so I I don't know haven't looked at charts for 35 years I've tried to use moving averages I hear about them I'm sure they're kind of similar, but I really like that feature that uh, human beings want to lock in those profits. And that moving average moves up every day as the market trends higher and higher. And you pat yourself on the back because you just can't wait to lock it in and take a profit. <clears throat> but the breakout just does this stair-step approach, and it's something rallies big like gold yesterday. That rally in gold for th over $35 had the, the trailing stop with a breakout trailing stop did not move up one bit. <laughs> 
it's kind of a bummer, but I think things like that are worth worth realizing and trying to make your system uh, harder to harder to like and harder to do. I mean, I like that, and I don't. I wonder if someone has ever done a really a proper analysis of 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 these three methodologies, which are probably the most common in our space. I don't know. Um, I'm not really that familiar with. Uh, moving average strategies, although I'm from memory at least, I think certainly that's how some of the European managers uh, started off. I think the US industry really came from the breakout. I mean, I think that's something that really is from the you know 70s and 80s, uh, very much how many CTAs in the US started off, uh, including ourselves. I mean, that's how our founders started off. But um, but I think the Europeans were much quicker to adapt the moving averages, and then the time series momentum uh, became kind of the next uh, big thing. Um, so on our side, we use the, the you know the the breakout and the time series momentum, but we don't use any moving average uh, strategies. Not as a specific signal generation signal. We might use it as a filter, but not as a signal generation. Same here. You know what? There's also another one. There's a fourth one, and there is a paper that examines that also, which is regressions. And so, you know, you kind of like you fit a regression line on the price and that determines the trend, whether it's up or down, and then you take a position accordingly. And there's only one fund, which I'm not going to mention now, but there's one fund, uh, which I know that's that's trading that. But when I look at the performance of that fund, it's kind of like, you know, 0.8 correlation to uh, to a breakout strategy, right? So it's, yeah. at, at the end of the day, those things are, for longer term trends, they're getting us in the same positions, Right. Whether the sizing is the same, we don't know that. The timing might be slightly off. You know, one one set of those strategies gets you in quicker, the other one gets you out quicker. Who knows? I think at the end of the day, it's a matter of taste. I I'm a big fan of the breakouts. There's some, you know, emotion in there where you know the the price reaches a new high, people want to buy it. Okay, let's do it. Right. This is this is nothing that a moving average gives me in the same way. That's right. It kind of uh, rubs me the wrong way not to buy the high. The, not to buy the high and not to sell the low. Right. Um, so I kind of don't like that idea. And uh, honestly, I thought about this and I think, and I, you know, 1984, January of 84, I'm given a chart book and I have to a uh, commodity perspective. We got them every Monday morning and we filled them in with pencil or whatever pen uh, for the rest of the week, you know, and the, the open, the high, low close. And then, um, so I've thought about that, and, I, and you know, I think I probably more than anything, given technology and stuff, it's just not possible to calculate by hand a moving average, you know, mm. versus you just count across how many days higher it was on the chart book. So I think that was probably the reason uh, breakouts were preferred because mm -hmm. you can't, you, know, you need a spreadsheet to calculate the um, moving average, or you can't just do it with a with a chart book. So it's kind of funny. I think that's how we kind of stumbled into it. And and in a sense, and, and I think that's also part of what you're saying, Jerry, is that, I mean, it's certainly easier visually to, to see the breakout uh, for sure where that occurs. And uh, I think sometimes these things actually play a big role. Uh, what we can easily see is often exactly. what we prefer. It, it, it's interesting, right, Joe, that, that what you say is true. I agree with that. It's It's visually easy to see the breakout that market has made a new high or it has made a new low. But when you look at a historical time series, say for the past five years, and there's a 200 day moving average, you kind of feel like, oh, well, that was easy, right? There's a 200 day moving average here. There's the price there. It's crossing here up and down. 
And it's, it's very easy to visualize that one. Whereas you look back on a five-year chart of daily bars, it's more difficult to find the new breakouts because you're not really, you don't know what time space you're looking at. Are you looking at a 20-day breakout or 50-day breakout or 200-day breakout? Um, so that is more difficult to see then. It's more easy to see in real time, I find. But, you know, looking back on, on things, the moving average is just so convenient. Yeah, no, very true. What else of goodies do you have in your Twitter bag? Well, once again, let's go back to George. He he had a, mm -hmm. quite a few good ones this week. Um, at least I liked them and uh, got a lot of responses. Uh, so another one I tweeted he was uh, statistical measures of risk have potential to lull one into a false sense of security that that will leave you sticking with a loser. I view risk in archaic terms deliberately. Anything can happen. There are two ways to manage risk: stop losses or limited exposures, or both. So yeah, I think that uh, trend following kind of wants to rely upon this whole idea, and we definitely rely and believe in this idea that anything can happen, good or bad. So we like the good stuff, and it can go for, forever, it can keep going, it can be really, it can go negative, we can, go, we can have negative rates. No, no we can't. Yeah, I think we might. So let's just um, go with that and stop losses or, or limiting your losses are very important and because you know we can get hurt if you uh, let a loss devastate your portfolio and um, i guess he leaves out something i would have added um, massive diversification not only currencies commodities stocks bonds but long and short those sectors and markets so i think that ctas are probably one of the better groups at being humble when it comes to risk and not being able to, um, later he mentions the limitations of some uh, statistical, traditional statistical measurements, VAR and things like that, that, um, you know, give you an indication that risk is low or high, but not a really good indication of what, what is possible in the future. Mars, any thoughts on this particular topic? Oh, there's <laughs> agree on all of that, but it was so long. Um, but yeah, I mean, to the point on, I'm just looking at you know some of Jerry's tweets uh, for the past two weeks because I haven't been all too uh, too active on them. But there's one that relates to what you just said on the negative rates. There is a um, chart that you send around or a graphic that you send around on forecasts on the ten year yield. Uh, I think at the beginning of the year or whatever that was, and um, like there's not a single forecast that is even in the proximity of where the 10-year yield is right now you know so i mean to me this is this is kind of like this is this is like a pot of gold because once again those as jerry used to say the or uses to say the fundamentals i mean all this forecasting of you know i know this is going to happen and the yield is going to be there and it definitely needs to go higher blah 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 really i mean just follow the price the thing is doing whatever it's doing and you really have to avoid getting trapped into your own opinion of where that should be. So I always love those type of things where, you know, people, they have their strong opinions on wherever things need to go, but then it's, um, you know, it just turns out to be absolutely wrong. 
same thing happens when journalists start to make predictions about where trend followers are going. Um, I hope so, yeah, I hope so. I suddenly remember the ones we discussed around March 1 when Bloomberg came out with the uh, how there is no way trend followers could uh, work because now we have Trump tweeting and everything goes so quick and uh, for sure that meant that these strategies would be failing. And ever since we've pretty much extinction, yeah. Um, ever since it's just been on a tear. So it's, uh, yeah, they're human to do these things, I guess. We we speak about that all the time. Of course, you know, the three of us, we speak about it all the time. There's many more people that, you know, have the same view on, you know, those forecasts really aren't worth anything or at least not a lot. And, but there's like to no avail, it just recurs and recurs, happens over and over again because that's the media that needs to write whatever it is, something, anything, right? So I, I'm not sure what, what what's really driving them, whether they have a strong opinion or whether it's just that, you know, something needs to be sold, some new story needs to be sold and they just put it out there and, you know, see what happens. If it sticks to the wall, if they're right, then, you know, they can congratulate themselves and tap themselves on the shoulder. And if it doesn't turn out to be right, there's not really a corrective factor that tracks them down and says, well, there's no penalty for being wrong, right? You just forget about it. So it's just, that's, that's the way that thing works. Yeah, my friend John said that, uh, art, he wrote this piece about uh, the part of the, included the part about the Wall Street Journal Economist. That chart is quite amazing. Uh, it's easy to make fun of people who predict because we know they're going to be wrong. And uh, somehow I try to always say, you know, we're, uh, the trend following is wrong 60% of the time. So we're not good at predicting. And Twitter, uh, there's another, good tweet I'll get to uh, that Bill Eckhart talks about uh, predicting as well. But uh, this, uh, the title, the main part about the article was that studies show that the main driver for persistence of predictions is the desire to feel control over our fate. Our fear of uncertainty is a powerful force. And we can understand that, uh, that people want to make the world make sense and get a collective group of people together so we all understand it makes sense. And when we all lose, we'll feel a lot better. But my response to that was uh, systematic trading decreases our feeling of being in control. Uh, if it's done correctly, you know, the system is kind of in control. And that's like the worst feeling ever. There's nothing more terrifying, I think, in f trading and finance than putting your hands, uh, your fate in the hands of rules. <clears throat> it could be AI, it can be trend following, simple spreadsheets, Excel, whatever. Uh, but um, it really is, you know, what are you going to do today? Nothing. But we're, we're getting our ass kicked. I know. I know. I don't like mm -hmm. it. And that's why, you know, it makes me think of that. Uh, we've talked about this David Drew's quote where he says, you'll know that systems are robust if they have a lots of volatility. Mm -hmm. Because what did you do for that volatility? Nothing. Why? Mm -hmm. The system said, wait to the 100-day 100, 100 low or the 200-day moving average before I exit. So what are you going to do? Before that, what if you give all this profit back? Nothing. I mean, it is bad. And I think the more some clients pick up on this, this could be one of the root problems of, they're like, oh, I understand it totally. I'm, I thought I could be patient, but you're asking me really to do the hardest thing possible is to sit back, sit on my hands and do nothing until even worse, long-term systems say, now you can finally exit. You know, it's, it's bad. And it's bad. It's I, I've been thinking about how hard that is. Not so much for me now because I've I've realized that trying to short circuit that is worse. 
you're going to miss out on profits. Uh, but it it's it takes a long time to to get to a place where you're really really comfortable. At least for me, I, I know, and I think this is this is actually true of any system. I think this is the algorithm aversion, whatever you want to call that, right? Having a system, being in control of your fate, of your returns taking over from your smart brains, right? This is this is not just for a systematic trend following system. This is, you know, any type of quantitative trading system, be that mean reversion or whatever it is. If the thing stops working, if it doesn't give you instant gratification, instant satisfaction in terms of returns, if it has a longer term drawdown, if it feels uncomfortable, it's very easy to lose confidence in that system. And that's where I think the alpha is to then stick with it and, you know, go through that trough and come back out the other side. It may take some time, though. I mean, of course, one of the quotes from uh, our conversation last week with Corey, and I know we've talked about this before, is, you know, if it isn't hard, it isn't alpha. Um, right. And and I think that's true. I mean, another very simple analogy where we talk about how difficult it is to let systems take over. I don't know about you guys, but when you put your car on cruise control and you just wait for it to kind of stop, when you, you can see the car in front of you breaking far before the car can, and it just feels a little bit, you know weird to uh, to wait for for that long before it reacts and of course now we're moving into a world where we're talking about self-driving cars i mean can you imagine how uncomfortable it's going to be to sit in the back seat without a driver and just let it do its thing i mean i think it's going to be very hard for people to to get comfortable with that um and the final thought i had when i heard what you said jerry is that um i think some people are can be quite surprised about how transparent uh, we as an industry have become. I know in the old days, um, and I certainly remember when your story came out, the turtle story, how it was very you know mystical and everybody wanted to find out how are they doing it. It was you know not a lot of transparency back then. Today, I think there is a lot of transparency about how we do this. And when we talk to investors or potential investors, we are pretty transparent. Because the key thing is that when it's when it's based on behavioral finance or human behavior, there's not a lot of secrets. But the secret and why no, um, what's the word? Um, the reason why not more people do this is not because it's difficult to figure out. It's because it's difficult to do. So you can share a lot because you know people are not going to, you know raise their hand and say, oh yeah, I want to be a trend follower because it's just so difficult to do day in, day out. Yeah, I mean, um, alpha, what, I, what I'm interpreting is alpha equals, um, a lot of it is just sitting through the drawdown. Mm. I have a Tesla in it and I put my car on that auto drive. <laughs> okay. It's not the back seat, it's my wife in the front seat. That okay. She's like screaming at me to take that thing off. Uh, but... Uh, <laughs> You know, I think, and not to beat a dead horse, because I have my favorite topics, and you know, this is another one, unfortunately, I apologize, but I just think that uh, from what I hear and read, and I, I know, obviously, come on, give me a break, I'm not against money management and risk control, right? But I do think that the temptation is overwhelming for people to say, let's program it in, it's a rule, and and then it's and call it money management. And risk control. But wait a second, we have risk control, we're going to risk X number of ATRs, and we're going to lose 35 basis points of our 
bankroll of our equity, and we're fully diversified long and short. We have trailing stops. So what do we, why, are we, why do we have to override the exit, the long-term exit, and call it money management and risk control? And I think this is a huge danger that, is, uh, that people are prone to defend. And it's almost like, you know, there's words in our societies these days. If you say the word, everyone needs to stop. You can go no further. You're, you've been defeated intellectually. And, and I think money management and risk control are, are, two, are two of those concepts that, well, crap, you know, I was waiting for the 100-day low, but if I, you, you know, you got out near the high because of high vol. I mean, give me a break. This is just what I call systematic discretion because you don't want to sit through, you don't want to have alpha, which is sitting through drawdowns, you know, and which, which basically mean, is the reason we make money. But uh, anyways, I'm ranting, sorry. No, it's fine. It's good. You had lots. You have it, had it build up from not being here last week. So uh, get it out. That's fine. <laughs> what else? Um, what else do you want to share with us, Jerry, from uh, your side before we jump to some questions? I mean, funnily enough, a lot of what we're talking about right now, I, I already know that there's questions about that. So we may even come back to it a little bit, but. Uh, but I would love to hear what else you um, picked oh, up. Oh, yeah. Week. Let me find the Bill Eckhart. Um, that got a lot. Right. Of, it was an old article, and George was asking me questions, and I said, okay, I think a lot of some good uh, ideas in this um, article from a few years ago. Uh, and while you find it, by the way, Bill Eckhart, of course, was on a uh, friendly uh, podcast that we also like, uh, AQR series season two uh, had Bill on, and um, and it was uh, talking about trend following, of course. Um, so nice to see that there is more discussions about uh, this little strategy. Oh, I didn't see that. I got to. Yeah, I'm not on top of my game. Uh, <laughs> so, anyways, um, it's a great article. The man who launched One Thousand Systems. I have a copy of it on, on my Twitter, but um, he says, uh, superficially, it seems like trading is a form of prediction, but it really isn't. Designing the systems as trying to predict the markets doesn't work. You have to concentrate on projecting losses, risk management, and finding something that works. Estimators don't show every divergence from randomness. If a model says corn should go up two cents, but it goes up eight cents, by the normal way of measuring, it was off by six cents. So it was a bad prediction was a good trade, but a bad prediction. I can begin to understand all of that, but I do think that's kind of funny. And, uh, you know, we can, you know, that's a really good way of looking at it. Um, you can be, how could you think it was a good, a good prediction if you're off so much, but, you know, we ended up making lots of money. <laughs> yeah. And I think to some degree, we, we say that a lot in other ways, like, I have no idea why Bitcoin's going up or gold went up, but I made a lot of money. <laughs> so I think that's pretty fun. That's, that's when we have our good fun. Yeah, and it's all about not necessarily making the right decision, but it's making the accurate decision at the time, um, you know, based on the data we have available. Um, and in this, you know, this is discussion we talked about um, when uh, Annie Duke's book came out about, you know, uh, the various, you know, uh, ways you, you make decisions. And uh, so, anyways... Not sure where I was going with that, but anyway, Moritz, any thoughts? Definitely uh, have to read that paper. I just downloaded while you guys spoke. Uh, it's in my mailbox oh my now, God. so I'll read it after the podcast. Always great okay. to to read things uh, that Bill writes. Sure. Yep. Absolutely. 
Anything else, Jerry? Do you want to take a couple of questions? We can always uh, come yeah, back. Let's, let's do questions. Okay. The first one is one of the things we've certainly touched upon, I would say, before. But since it's from our good friend, Sam, we definitely want to uh, take this question. So it goes, another potential abstract topic. In so much that the trading slash investing world, you hear the wise approach is to not over-optimize curve fit, but that you, bracket maybe, should do some optimization, whatever that means. It seems in trend following, we might only seek to optimize our risk parameters and nothing else. It might actually seem that we should, we could seek to not optimize anything in any way to any degree. So in your collective views, please fill in, expand on this statement, my view and attitude towards op optimization is so thanks sam for that um question moritz there's a lot any, in there there's um, a lot in there yeah absolutely hmm. so we're saying he was saying we only optimize the risk management part of our systems did i get that right but nothing else i'm well i'm not 100 sure i don't want to give the, the wrong no, answer no i here. don't know if he's saying that that but but i mean maybe in some ways you could say that um but but maybe I think the question is just more broadly, um, mm. you know. Well, to me, the the thing is, you know, what is what is over optimization? Over optimization is you have instability in your system and it's no longer robust because of the fact that you've over optimized it, right? And the cure, really, the only cure against that is a sample size. So if I have a large sample size that I can work with in the same way. You know, large sample size, I only get that if I run a system that's using the same signals, the same entries, the same exit rules for all the markets in the same way that I trade long or short, right? That gives me the large sample size. And and on the back of that large sample size, I can find out whether my whether I like that system, whether whether that system's robust or not. And then of course, I mean there's there are choices that that I make. I I don't think that's you know that you can say that's optimizing the system for my liking it's not over optimizing it to only fit a historical time series and you know create nice historical returns but i optimize it for my liking and what i mean by that is well how much risk does it take how much heat how much volatility does it have um you know what time frames do i trade is it more in the you know medium to longer term time frames or is it in the shorter term time frames you know, those type of things. Of course, I mean, this is optimized to my liking. And, you know, Jerry's system and Niels' system will look different because you like different things, I'm pretty sure, right? We like the same trend following type of thing, but maybe our risk view and risk tolerance is slightly different. So that is what I optimize for myself. And other than that, I try to be extremely careful to not over-optimize anything. One of the one of the things, and I think we touched upon this a little a little bit last week with Corey, um, and that is uh, because he had also done some work on this. But I don't think this is anything that is surprising, and it's this balance between um, you know, if you make something too simple, um, it can be fragile. Even though we often say that if it's simple, it's more robust. Um, so that's definitely, uh, one side of things. Um, and of course, uh, the other side is that if you make it too complicated, it can also, um, you know, make it, 
uh, fragile uh, in, in, a, in a sense. Um, and by complicated, I mean, again, I think if you try to be too clever about things, if you try to optimize, um, you know, you, you, you put yourself uh, in, a, in a weaker spot. So I'm still of the belief that um, things should be, you know, relatively simple. I don't think what we do when I look at what we do compared to what trend following did 20, 30 years ago, I definitely know that what we do is a lot more sophisticated in some ways, yet it is founded upon some principles that were also valid, um, you know, 20, 30, uh, 40 years ago. We've just found may maybe a little bit more um, I wouldn't have used, I mean, sophisticated is not the right word, but we found better ways of expressing those core beliefs. Um, so I don't think there's anything wrong with trying to make things um, better, but you have to play, you have to be really careful. Um, and, and, and I don't certainly don't subscribe to the fact that things that are more complicated and sounds more fancy, et cetera, et cetera, um, is better. I don't believe that. And I remember a quote from you, Moritz, a couple of weeks ago, where you said simplicity doesn't sell. And I think that is true. I mean, I, th I think that's one of the problems uh, for our industry. Not that I, you know, really want a lot more trend followers raising a lot more money. I don't think that's going to help us. Um, but, um, but our stories are usually not quite as sexy as some of these newer strategies. Um, that people tend to fall in love with. Um, and maybe it's just because it's an old story that has been around for a long time that people just think, yeah, you know, I've heard that before. And, you know. Really, there's there's no objective definition of simple. It's in the eye of the observer. What's simple to you may be complex or sophisticated to somebody else looking at the same thing, right? People always say something is simple, but there's no definition as to what simple really is. You know, to, to me, what it means is, you know, I, I like the fact that, you know, some of the things that we do, they can be sophisticated or even more complex. And there's, there's nothing wrong with that. That can still be simple. But what it needs to, what it absolutely needs to produce is a large sample of trait statistics. And it's very clear that if you have a system that's using 10 or 20 parameters to get you into a trait, right, all the things need to line up and it needs to be a half moon day then that can only work in the past. And, you know, the sample size that you create with that type of system is very, very small. It's, it's very unreliable. And it just so happens to be that, you know, the fewer the rules, the fewer kind of like the drivers behind what gets in and out of the trade, I'm not saying they're simple. They may be sophisticated in the way that we do it, right? But their applicability, they show up, you know, quite often in a, in a frequent way. And that gives us the sample size and the reliability for that system. Yeah, and I, mean, I yeah. I think that, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, here's the bottom line. Trying to figure out a way um, that you can be long-term, which is necessary, because you need to figure out, the, uh, the way I look at it, it's two different things. Two things you need to worry about. Uh, how do I get in the trade and not get keep getting knocked out? These days, you have to be longer-term than the 80s and 90s. Then how do I, if I'm going to do that then, great, but how do I, when the market turns around and I have this open profit, how do I not give back too much or all of it or enough to where my, my approach is not really that profitable anymore? So trying to come up with a sophisticated way to get out before that long-term exit 
I don't know how to do that. And so, and my guess is neither does anybody else, hardly anyone else. So if you want to tell me, oh, I'm very sophisticated, uh, so-and-so is very sophisticated with lots of good techniques, we know when to override our system exit. I mean, to me, that's fraught with a lot of problems. I want to do it. I, I think uh, I have some ways of doing it. <clears throat> I just don't think it's really math. I think that we're, when we have these outlier trades, the trades that matter, and we make in 100 ATRs, 50 ATRs, 200 ATRs, uh, I don't want to see it all go away. I've seen trades. It happens in the data. <clears throat> and so what are you going to do to override your 100-day low, your moving average, long-term moving average crossover? This is a problem. And so I'm a little skeptical of <clears throat> being more sophisticated when I know that's where you've got to go. Oh, maybe you want other places, which is great. Entries are better, whatever. But uh, you've, if you want to make a change, if you want to do something material, you've, that's where you have to start looking. And I think that's difficult. And I don't know how to do it. I actually think that one of the things that comes with experience in this industry, and I think one of the things that is the hardest thing that we do is actually continuing to make to make what we do simpler in in a, in a sense i mean i think it's you know that i think that is hard, it's harder to take something complex and make it simple than vice versa but i also think that it's um uh, to some degree if you and and maybe I, I i'm not entirely sure how to to phrase this but if you take different investors with different skill sets or experience and you put them in front of a chart i think they're all going to see different things right i mean some people will see all sorts of patterns and head and shoulders and rising wedges and all of that that's just how they see it and i think we as trend followers i think the better we get the more experience we get we just see the price and we don't see all this noise and you know complexity and so on and so forth you know and and i think that's something that um, you have to train yourself to do just like you said earlier jerry you have to you know only with you know experience has it become easier for you to ride these drawdowns i'm sure that's the same for all of us certainly not just for you um so it's almost like you know just see the see the markets for what they are and don't see them for more than than what they really are um sometimes that can be really hard and i think it comes with with uh, experience and then what we do is then we distill that into rules so that we just trade quote unquote the truth i mean we think the truth of the markets is the price that's that's it um but i'm sure when you start out and when you look at these things you see a lot more uh, than than just that. Yeah, I mean, I don't think my systems have ever been this simple. Um, yeah. And I would look at these weekly charts and see, and if you look at weekly charts, <clears throat> you can see, you know, 15 or 20 years worth of data on your screen, and you put a channel around it, you can see these monster trends pop out. You can see the material. What's material? What's a material trend? Your your definition of that kind of changes, and so I would go to my research group and say, okay, here's let's try to trade longer term, and just, here are the parameters that I think number one doesn't knock you out too quickly, and it doesn't usually give back too much profit, 
but it does sometimes, so let's make that a separate project. We'll work on that. And they would run it through the computer, and they'd say, yeah, you've got the parameters pretty close just by eyeballing it because it's not rocket science. What keeps you in a long-term trend It goes a year or two, uh, and but doesn't give back, usually doesn't give back too much profit. <clears throat> but I'm not a big fan of people looking at charts because it's just like you say, you'll see something, I'll see something. It's very brutal to take that price, same price data and throw it in a back test. And the computer is very rude at the results it'll give you. You think, you know, some of these ideas I have might work and then they don't work that well. So I think uh, that's sort of the bottom line to me is staying in, staying in gear with these long-term trends, but not staying around too long. And I saw that quote from uh, Corey's uh, podcast <clears throat> where uh, too simple can equal fragile. And I was really wondering how that could be possible. And so I really don't know how that could be possible. Uh, a moving average crossover, uh, uh, reversing breakout, and that's all that, are, that there is, maybe with a stop loss. I mean, that seems uh, pretty simple. I don't think it's fragile at all. <clears throat> I do think that maybe the word I would use is it might not be profitable. It may not be very good. So uh, that's a, that's something that's sort of a given. Like <clears throat> you can't be uh, touting your system and how robust and uh, not fragile it is, but it really doesn't make much money. So I, I could definitely see that. <laughs> Well, I know the next question um, is something that, um, especially you, Jerry, it's it's you, you. But you're not allowed to answer with the with one word, "Amen." But here here goes. I would like to know what each of you think of the following. Since investing with a CTA provides a client diversification among a broad class instruments, a broad class, yeah, a broad class instrument. Why shouldn't a client invests the majority of his her portfolio in one of these trend-following systems. You often hear one should invest five percent in one asset um, in in one assets in this type of program. I'm not; uh, it's not read very eloquently, but I think we get the picture here. Basically, Mike is saying if we're giving you all this diversification. Why not put a lot, much larger uh, part of your portfolio into trend following? Yeah, well, this reminds me a little bit of about where the big uh, discussion you and I had a few weeks ago. And so I'm just really concerned if I can get my point across and be clear, not that uh, everyone has to agree, but uh, so I was like trying to make the point that I don't, I don't like view what we do as managed futures as a category as much. And that's going to lead me to allocate a certain percentage to manage futures. That's not exactly the way I would look at it. I don't think that's correct. <clears throat> um, although I think it's fine. If someone out there wants to allocate to me, that's fine. But I look at it and breaking it down between the different sectors and all the different markets, the currencies, commodities, stocks, and bonds. And um, this is massive diversification. It's the best. You can't get too much better you can add Bitcoin, you can add some esoteric stocks uh, that don't act like stocks. Great, you can access more diversification through ETFs or stocks or whatever over the counter. But by and large, um, you're not gonna get more diversification, which I think is kind of the goal. Uh, and you throw in shorts, and you throw in some risk control. <clears throat> and more importantly, the wrapping the trend following around each one of these markets turns it into a profitable market to trade, whereas analyzing these same markets, 100 markets or 100 different markets, uh, 
based upon the buy and hold, you know, you may say it doesn't work that well. So uh, stocks were great, bonds are good. I'll include gold and some real estate, and you're stuck. And then, how about the other 85 markets, cocoa, coffee, individual markets that we trade? And so it's hard to uh, argue that this would not, should not be the kind of core. And then, if you wanted to say to yourself, it seems very uh, illogical for me to think that it's safe and profitable to just own the S&P 500 index. <clears throat> well, maybe I'll do that anyways, because there are times when that does outperform trend following uh, in the whipsaw scenarios that we've seen recently. But then you've got to get over the idea that stocks are the center of the universe, and uh, they always make money. And uh, we, we, we may think that all of these other markets and sectors are, have the same profitability and uh, possibilities as stocks. <clears throat> so the worst yeah. thing that could happen is what's happening now is the trend following of all of these different sectors and markets has really underperformed long only stocks. So that's where we are right now, philosophically and theoretically. I believe I make a very strong case, but practically it just falls on deaf ears. What about you, Moritz? Are you? Um... I'm on. Uh, I'm 100 on uh, on Jerry's side there. I you know, could have could have said it better anyway, really. But um, look, I mean, owning the S and P 500 long only buy and hold can be very risky. I think, in fact, I'd say it is very risky. It just doesn't feel like it in the past last you know 10 years, and it doesn't look like it when you look at a 50 year chart. Right then, the thing looks like roses. But you know, it's so difficult to um, to hang on to the thing during the difficult times. And we may we may have just been so lucky that equities, you know, US equities in that example have performed so well in the past couple of, you know, decades. But really the point I want to make is, you know, that the systems with the risk control and robustness, that kind of like give me the protection. And that is what I want. And I really want to expand here and, and say, you know, it doesn't have to be hundred percent trend following. You know, absolutely love trend following. There are other systems which I like. I mean, there are systems which I do not like, which I would not trade, like systematic, say, selling of volatility. That's a system I do not like, right? But there are other some, you know, systems which trade spreads, um, which I think are robust, you know, by other managers. And I really like those guys. There are shorter term systems which which I like. There, there are systems too. They're not necessarily, you know, trading trend only, but you know, adding them to my portfolio is a great thing. But I know that, you know, the, the way those systems have been created, the way they're traded, the people that own them, that manage them, they they have the same type of views. You know, they have a robust system that has risk management, has, you know, all sorts of risk control around it. And and that gives me a, a just good, happy feeling when I put it into my portfolio, much, much better than, you know, putting in long gold, long gold only. Good stuff. I mean, there's nothing really I can uh, add to that. Uh, you both said it very well. Uh, so let's jump back to another question. This is actually from Sam again, a little follow-up question. Um, let's see if I can get this a bit uh, clearer. During December and early 2019, trend followers slash CTAs were heavily scrutinized for not handling the fall uh, crisis in U.S. equities well, getting out too late, getting back in too late. The bulk way I handle U.S. equities is to take a very long-term view to the majority uh, of that allocation, 18 months look back, 
In that case, an exit short was never triggered. I stayed long. In my view, this is a textbook's example uh, for the industry to one, promote long-term approaches with risk and diversification, and two, be firm uh, with stating that this instance was nowhere near a crisis. It really wasn't a big, uh, that big of a uh, down move, given the tremendous run-up of the past few years, if that is the horizon you take. Um, I have no idea if your strategies uh, did, would have stayed long in December, but this just feels like an opportunity to stand firm with the view that we are here to prevent real extreme downside. Or perhaps I'm insane as an individual investor myself for taking this 18-month stand view. Thank you again, Sam. Very uh, interesting. Let me kick that one off since I didn't say much uh, to the last question. Um, I mean, we did. Uh, we did get out of uh, most equities. We did go short uh, most equity markets um, in the fall of last year. So we certainly made some money from equities in December uh, on the uh, on the short side. Uh, obviously, gave back uh, some of that in 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 January, but got back uh, on the long side. Um, and um, and have made money from 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 the long side this year. So, I mean, I don't know if it if if it has to be religious that we have to be so long term that you know um, that you know a situation like the fall of last year um, could not have triggered us to go short. Um, but what I and and so and and I'm not so sure if I I mean I kind of agree with you saying it wasn't a real crisis. But it could have become a crisis, I would say. I mean, if if there hasn't been all the hadn't been all those tweets and interventions, um, I mean, it could have been, I think, a, a, a somewhat more of a crisis than than what um, uh, what we got. But what I do think is that it was very different from what happened in February of last year. That two week event where Trend Follows really lost a lot of money, like so many other uh, managers, not just from equities, but from all the trends that turned at the same time. To me, that was no near a crisis, even though the losses were more severe. It was a two-week event, uh, a little bit of a freak event um, with low liquidity and so on and so forth. Um, but I, I still think that a lot of trend followers you know, would have uh, gotten short some of the equities last fall, last December. Um, and have would have had to turn uh, positions this year. What do you say, Jerry? Uh, one of the best questions ever. I wrote down so many <laughs> things to say. Man, Good. this is a great, great question. Uh, oh, maybe he's calling us to be even longer term. You know, I would. I don't. I don't. We we always talk about. I talk with other man traders and friends. I'm long term. Oh, I'm long term. I wonder how long term they really are. What is your definite? I think. There's probably people out there who would think my definition of long term is like nutso. <laughs> uh, so he's saying maybe even longer term. I like that. That's interesting. I'm going to check that out. I'm going to take that challenge. Uh, um, but you know, we have our colleagues in the CTA industry who are saying that long term trend following is turning their back on the clients and their style drift. Uh, the mere fact that December was a temporary sell off. That's disaster. Yes, and you should not let that happen. Makes no difference that it rallied. Mm. I don't care for that argument, of course. Um, but I do think one of the most interesting things about this question is, 
it uh, and I know exactly what you're talking about, Niels, <clears throat> as you described your stock the stock trading. And that is this is so this is why it's so important to trade the single names because what was going on in the indexes was far different than what was going on in the, in a diverse group of equities. And so I think that's another thing that really <clears throat> is challenging that we've got to uh, think about getting more diversification because those indexes were in a downtrend. But I'm sure the vast majority of my stock positions were long and uh, remained long. So when it all rallied this year, I still had some of those positions. But I love your idea. I mean, you're almost giving me the impression like uh, it wasn't a disaster. It wasn't that bad. It wasn't a crisis. It rallied. Exactly. Ignore those drawdowns. Just ignore them until they hit your exit. And even then, it, well, most of them rallied. Uh, but fortunately, not all of them hit my exit, and I was able to hang in there. What about you, Moritz? How long term should we, should should we exactly be? that that is that is the interesting point here? What's the definition of long term, right? So yeah. five minutes is extremely long term to a high frequency trader, and five minutes is nothing to us. Um, you know, it, it used to be that, at least I remember that, like you know, trading one hundred days is long term. That certainly isn't long term to me anymore. Mm. But um, <clears throat> I must say, like. You know, I'm I'm trading a you know, it's kind of like the 18 month type of thing, but it's like a 300 day exposure to a 300 day um, window. Yeah, I have that in there, but it's in the eye of the of the observer whether that's long term or not. Maybe that is, maybe that's now medium term. I I really don't know. Um, so it is really it depends on on who you speak to. You know, and, and the there's, other, there's a point to be made to have a 400 day or maybe a 500 day exposure. I've, I've read uh, articles of uh, some of our f the famous CTAs, and uh, they would exact they would start describing certain charts and trades and gold. Gold was one of them, and he, and this person started describing um, being long gold, and I'm like, oh my gracious, they were they're longer term than me, and they were long gold or short gold or whatever. Ah, but they threw in the vol targeting. <laughs> so we all see the same issue here, and that is you've got to be long-term. You're going to get knocked out, and as soon as you get knocked out, the odds are you're going to have to buy it again, and that's the cost of trend following. You, got to, you get out, so glad I got out. I solved all these problems by getting flat. Oops, now i got to buy it again. Yeah, went right back up. Got out too quickly. Even if you have a super-duper long-term, you're going to have to buy it again. It's going to rally to the highs sometimes. And then what is the solution? I'm going to change my exit based upon the size of the profit. I'm going to change my exit based upon the vol. All of these nuances, all of these uh, degrees of freedom uh, are hammering on robustness when the simple system is waiting for the 100-day low, the 150-day low, the 200-day low, and it's just so painful. And I mean, this is honestly where we're all at. We're all making these different choices and we're believing in what we've chosen. Although sometimes I say, darn, I don't know if I, <laughs> my confidence is waning. <laughs> it's a tough business. <laughs> it is a damn tough business for sure, without a doubt. Um, well, we appreciate the question, Sam, as you can tell. Uh, we love diving into some of these uh, points. Now, here's a question that certainly have you in mind, Jerry. This is from Scott. 
Um, he starts out by saying, I'm a long-term listener of the podcast. Look forward to it every week. Appreciate that comment, Scott. Um, I'm a trend follower, believe, trend following believer and have been for a while. When Jerry and the Turtles back in the 1980s, they did amazingly... Um, oh, hang on, let me just start with it. When Jerry and the Turtles traded back in the 1980s, they did amazingly well for that period of time. And it seems to me that trend following is capable of eye-popping performance as long as someone could stomach a big drawdown, which no one seems to be able to do. My question, if you didn't have to worry about investors' psyche uh, and didn't mind, say, a 75% drawdown, how well could a diversified portfolio do in a year if you let it rip 50% in a year, 100% question mark. Love to know what you guys think the incredible upside might be. It's kind of a funny question because normally we don't really think too much about what the upside could be. We're more worried about what the downside could be. So, um, yeah, well, we've said on the podcast, uh, Moritz and I both, I believe, <clears throat> have, I think he backed me on this one. Uh, we're probably not too far off, but that the, return is a the drawdown is maybe at least twice as much as the return so mm -hmm. half of 75 percent if he wants me to risk uh, max drawdown of 75 i mean it may not work out that way in the future but um, i would say that maybe 30 35 or 37 and a half might be the limit um i wouldn't recommend it um what you can tolerate and what your how macho you can be before you hit a 75 percent drawdown uh, probably not a good indication of what, how you're going to be feeling when you're actually down 75. Um, plus, plus there's a bit of math here, right? Because if you're down 50%, you have to make 100% to get back to even, right? So you, you also have to be a little bit cognizant of, of that side of things. Plus you have to be, I mean, one of the things that we've learned from day one in trend following school is you have to be there um, or you have to, to survive to play another day, right? And so if your account is down 75%, but you actually need 40% margin, I mean, if you have that kind of leverage, you probably use 30-40% margin. So if you're down 75%, I mean, you know, you have to trade a lot smaller than what you would normally do. So I don't think it's a matter, Scott, if I can address this specifically, it's not, it's not a matter of really how much can I make in absolute terms. I mean, it's all relative to the risk you take. Um, and, um, you know, and, and there is all of these things that you can read about, you know, about volatility drag and so on and so forth, that if you get so far away from, from your all-time high, I mean, it just takes that much longer to get back. So, as Jerry said, I wouldn't recommend trying to shoot for the stars. I would much rather make sure you're here every single day for the next 50 years to play to play the trends and, and, and take advantage of them. And I don't think a 75 and trading with that amount of leverage uh, would be a good idea. Also from the point of view that we have to always be aware that something that we have not seen in the data yet could happen. And, and it is not completely uh, for fun that we always say, or we, a lot of people say, I don't know that we always say it, but a lot of people say that your worst drawdown is always in front of you. That's the point exactly. And, you know, I've never really thought about it in the way of um, if I'm ready to accept X drawdown, then I'm looking to make Y or 2X or 3X percent return. It's I never thought about it that way. But 
let's, you know, if you want to have a look at some numbers, I mean, say you had a, a one-sharp ratio trend following system, which is a fantastic trend following system. If you ask me, I like a one-sharp ratio system, right? But for the, for the ease of the calculations here on the podcast, let's use one. If you traded that at 20 vol, then your expected rate of return is 20% per year, right? And my experience, just looking at history and everything you said about the, the worst drawdown being ahead of your needles, I agree with that totally. But with a 20% vol system, that's your standard deviation. I think, you know, looking at the historical numbers, you should ex expect between two, two and a half, maybe even three standard deviations of a drawdown there, right? So it definitely gets you into the 50% range. So there you have your 50% drawdown, definitely with a 20% vol system, making 20% per year, not 150. There may be a 150% year in there. Yeah, for sure. One of those years, not for sure, but it could be, right? We've seen this, some of those guys uh, made this in 2008, 2009, but you will have some other years which are brutally bad. As Jerry uh, often reminds us, um, you know, we have always to look at the S&P, a 15 ball strategy with an 8% return and a 54% drawdown. So, yeah. I mean, uh, I wrote that down a few minutes ago when, uh, when one of you guys made a comment because, uh, you know, this these returns that the long S&P gets, uh, they deserve those returns. You know, it's the riskiest thing on the planet. <clears throat> Never get out. Uh, and 50 plus percent drawdown is just what's been in history. It was much higher in the NASDAQ and some of the other indices. So they deserve that little paltry 8% with a 50 some percent drawdown. We're trying to do something much different, give you 8% with a 16% drawdown, 20% mm -hmm. drawdown. That's what we're, tr that's what our goal is. You just have to sort of buy into the idea that uh, cotton, coffee, cocoa, sugar, corn, wheat, and beans are part of the portfolio, and they and shorts are part of it, and they don't track the S&P, and they can go through periods where they don't do as well as the S&P. Which is why, coming back to your point earlier, Jerry, about David Drews and his article about you know reassuringly volatile, um, that risk and volatility is not the same. And um, and this is why it's also kind of frustrating, even after all these years having done this, that people still look at us as the riskiest thing that they could choose, um, when when in fact the numbers doesn't suggest that. Um, it's just that it it happens more frequently for us that we are in a in a drawdown of a of a reasonable size. Um, people who only look at equity or people who prefer equities, they forget that the Nasdaq went down 80%. They forget that S&P went down 54%. I mean, and this has happened in, in you know, just in the last 15 to 20 years. I mean, it's so... Well, well when we get back to the normal markets and <clears throat> normal performance, they'll forget for us as well. So I'm all <laughs> for forgetting. Uh, but uh, he brought up the turtles and I just thought about how it's a different uh, sort of uh, game now than uh, the 80s. And uh, so now it is, uh, we described it ex accurately of how it would work. So if you want me to, how much can I make if you give me a 75% drawdown, um, it, given these, the need to trade long term, the need to, the first need of your system, the first requirement is it needs to make money. Now let's move forward. How do we make it better? How do we make it more robust? So in order to make money, I've got to trade long term. My drawdown is going to be at least twice my average or annual return. Now, back in the 80s, it was much different. We traded very short term. And all of the drawdown, 
and it was profitable. So it's profitable, short term, and the, so the massive drawdown, the, the you know, uh, the four years of the turtle program, we probably averaged 200%. The drawdown was totally due to leverage. I mean, so, so was the 200%, right? But uh, moderate leverage these days will get you a 75% drawdown <laughs> or really uncomfortable drawdown because we have to trade so long term and sit through more choppiness and more drawdown. So it's a different ball game, much different than the past. Nothing survived the turtle, nothing about the turtle systems has survived except I would say the money management and uh, things like that. But the well, a, the philosophy for sure has yeah, survived, right? Yeah, you know, yeah. uh, letting winners run and cutting yeah. losses. When true, you say true. short term, when you say short term, Jerry, I'm curious. Maybe I didn't read up on that in in all the turtle books that I've come across. But when you say short term back then, I mean, what do you mean? I mean, how short is she short? Well, I'll tell you. Since it's in the public domain, oh, um, sure. books and websites, but uh, System One was um, twenty five the twenty day high. Sell at the twenty-day low, two eight two ATR, or maybe smaller sometimes two ATR mm. stop loss. Mm. Um, system two, I think, was forty days higher, twenty days lower, mm -hmm. two ATR stop loss. Yeah, I could be corrected because everybody knows these numbers. Which sure, I, I might have sure, forgotten sure. it, but I think that's kind of what it was. So yeah. compare that now to two hundred days higher. 175 right. days lower. <laughs> yeah, yeah. you look like you look like a, sh a high frequency trade effect. Then you leverage it up. Uh, you get a 20 ATR move. A 20 ATR move was the gold, the golden move. That was it. 20 ATRs. You get 20 ATRs. That may take you a few weeks or a couple of months. My uh, back test is making all of its money in one and a half year, two and a half year trends. Mm. Yeah. So it's way different. <clears throat> and I think uh, I've come to this conclusion that, you know, listening to uh, other turtles and mentors talk about the way they trade now is that I think I misinterpreted and I, I got off track on what it, a lot of what that program was all about and i don't think it was about trend following it was about research and using using math and computers to figure out what worked <clears throat> at that time trend following worked and that sort of the parameters um, were probably longer term parameters would probably be unacceptable then and now and it would never was about i took off on trend following as this uh, doubt in the world trend follower, but I don't think that's what it was about. I misinterpreted that. I think it was about um, evolving and maybe you trend follow today, maybe you don't later, you come up with other ways of doing it, five-day holding periods, 10-day holding periods, I don't know, but I don't think uh, the bottom line was systematic and using research and making money, not necessarily trend following. That's, I think, something, uh, so I don't, I like to say that I haven't changed very much except the parameters, but I may have changed away from the original philosophy more than anyone else. 
I mean, I think it's interesting you mentioned that, and I'm sure people might be shocked if now that they hear you say that maybe the turtle program wasn't about trend following, uh, which I think is a great. Uh, I'm sure that's going to be a great quote in 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 the tweets uh, for next week. Um, but it kind of ties in a little bit with the fact that if you look at one of the two mentors of the program, namely Bill Eckhart, he he did not go and become a long term trend follower. I mean, in fact, he probably, you know, went even shorter uh, than the original set of rules in the way he trades. But he re- but he kept some of these philosophies, you know, cut your losses, let your winners run, um, and, and money management, as you rightly say. So maybe you weren't off when you now say that thinking back of it, maybe the turtle program wasn't about trend following per se, even though all the rules you were you were taught can be applied within a trend following system but maybe it was about all the the, the discipline the the you know do the research do the work etc cetera, etc cetera. and and that was what what richard dennis uh, you know really taught you along with bill of course but that's what what the legacy is yeah um, i'm going to i'm going to backtrack cuz you frightened me there with saying this is going to be a big quote cuz i don't want to Quote. <laughs> there's there's uh, 20 turtles and there's 20 different opinions about everything sure. uh, but yeah i think that's not the i shouldn't have said it that way uh okay. the, the turtles were about trend following absolutely and but being a being in that program was not about um here and now it was about how are you going to survive and evolve because the markets change and they evolve and you need to be prepared to have a long career and figure out in in the future what you should be doing, and that should be centered around these basic principles, uh, and money management and backtest. And uh, so, uh, evolving away from trend following is absolutely a possibility. Although, at, you know, obviously for those four years it was all trend following. So, um, yeah, and so I wasn't willing to evolve too much, other than maybe just being longer term. Sure. Cool. All right. Last question of uh, of the week. Uh, this is from Bruno, and I think Bruno, uh, because I saw the question while we were talking just before, and I think it kind of touches upon a lot of the things we've talked about today. So, so um, let's see if we can't wrap this up into a uh, nice, concise uh, answer for you, Bruno. And Bruno is actually a systematic trader. It doesn't come across necessarily from the question, but but I know that uh, because I had to ask him uh, to be sure. He says, I love to hear you guys talk more about trading discipline, handling pullbacks and letting profits run. The main problem in my trading is that I don't handle pullbacks within a profitable trade well, and I often take profits too soon. Any suggestions on how to overcome those issues? It has been really hurting my performance as I have left a lot of profits on the table by trying to pick top or bottoms uh, on a profitable trade. I know what I'm doing wrong, but I just find myself making rash decisions as I see a good profit decreasing rapidly. So I think that really synthesizes the issue um, that we've been talking about uh, today in in many ways. Um, So I'm sure you're not going to hear anything completely new, Bruno, um, but let's just uh, go around and give you a little bit of uh, feedback on this. Moritz, you've been quiet for a while, so uh, 
just to make sure that the Austrian mountain air hasn't completely taken it all out of you. Yeah, it's kind of kind of fresh up here. It's sixteen hundred meters of altitude, so it keeps me fresh. But um, I like this question. I can give. Um, you know, it's it's just a personal recommendation. Maybe you guys have different things and different ways uh, to look at this, but I'm I'm willing to share what helped me um, because it is it is difficult and dangerous. Um, but what helped me is to not look at the markets all the time. You know, I used to be when I started because the things is, the things are moving right. It's so exciting. It's so interesting. Gold's moving higher. Oil's moving higher. This is moving lower. That is moving up. It's so interesting to look at that and the velocity of the moves and what's triggering it. And but at the end of the day, um, that's not that's not really important. It's not important at all. And so the way I go about it is, um, you know, still go about it that that way today. You know, sometimes I do look at the markets, but really I do it at the end of the day when the markets are closed. Or maybe I don't even look at the market every day, but only every second day. And not at every market that I have in the portfolio, right? So it's kind of like when earlier today we said that you know gold was going um, to one thousand four hundred. Well, I didn't really see it today when it happened. I saw that you know half an hour before we started to speak. When you know I looked at the market, like I had a, a real quick look at the things. But you know it kind of like keeps me away from pulling the trigger. Sometimes when I look at this this thing, the markets are closed already. I can't force anything any anyways, right? So that that is that the cure for me is um you know there's there's no point looking at five minute bars and, and following the markets intraday jerry what do you think yeah i mean uh, <clears throat> i agree and i think the most you know you if uh, you need to follow your system but then you need to make sure your system isn't too short term um i mean so put those two together sorry I can't help you if you're not going to follow the system. And I've already told you, you need to be longer term and look at those weekly charts and see what it, what parameter keeps getting you knocked out too quickly and only to see the market go to new highs. And so keep going, keep expanding that. Uh, I, I read this book, uh, Taleb book, Fooled by Randomness. And uh, that's like a little basket case at the time when it is related to being disciplined and following my systems and watching the markets and somewhere in that book he says like don't look at the markets i mean i just took that as license right then and there oh my gosh that's fantastic don't look at the daily markets don't follow don't be a tape reader <laughs> and uh, so I, I haven't looked at the markets very much since then nor have i really looked at daily performance numbers since then so um <clears throat> i think that's how i highly recommend that um i think that people have these systems they they hear us talk they hear everyone tell them exactly what to do uh, follow the system you know when the exit gets hit that's when you get out i mean people will ask you a dozen times and when you tell them that well well when else do you get out <laughs> you don't you just get out when the exit gets hit your stop loss if you have one or your trailing stop if you have an override that says on a massive monster profit when i when i'm about ready it looks like to give back all of it back because my trailing stop is so far away I'm going to have some sort of override. Okay, whatever. Good luck with that. It's really difficult to pull that off. Um, but I get uh, George sent me this these quotes, uh, and I he wanted my comments on all these this quotes from this one guy. And he's like, uh, and one of the quotes is, uh, "If the stock doesn't act as expected, that's a major red flag." And I'm like, "No, follow the system. You've got your get out when the exit rules are met." 
uh, not acting as expected is it is some sort of discretionary thought um you know until your exit is elected you have no thoughts you have you you have nothing to do you have nothing to think about uh, and there's no such thing as the market not acting as expected you know it's just so i know it's a brutal thing to say but just follow your entries and exits there's nothing else going on here um, smart people get involved in, in this type of thing and they're like well where do you go from here and the answer is you don't go anywhere get into another field if you're not if you're not rewarded uh, intellectually by following these trends with with very few variables, then find something else to do. Get into short-term AI, short-term trading or something. But I think for the vast, vast majority of us, the worst that's going to be ever said about us is, is we had massive drawdowns. And we ended up making pretty good money. And you just got to embrace that and accept that. Yeah, well said, both of you guys. Uh, let me add just a couple of things for you, Bruno. Um, I actually had replied to you by email uh, and more or less exactly what Moritz and Jerry has said about, you know, don't look at the markets uh, every day all the time and spend your time doing something uh, different. But one thing that springs to mind when I read your email again is actually, I think you might be overtrading. I mean, I think if you, you know, I think that the attraction for you to, to, um, Try and you know fiddle with your 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 system like that, and and try and pick tops and bottoms and and all of that. I think it's it's because the PNL has too much of an impact on you uh, emotionally. So I would also suggest maybe just take it down a notch, uh, as you've heard Jerry Moritz and I say many times. I mean, overtrading is is not a good thing. Um, so uh, on top of all the other stuff. Um, I would uh, I would do that, and as Jerry says, I mean, once you've done your back test, once you're comfortable with it, uh, you need to learn to love that. I mean, you need to learn to love your system, your systems, your losses, um, because you believe in the long term projection. But I will also say, and I know this is maybe um, a weird thing to say to someone like you who loves to trade, but but sometimes I don't know that building your own trend-following system is the best thing in the world to do. I mean, sometimes I think it's better for people to go and find a trend-follower to do do it for you and then go and do something else that you love to do. Um, you know, life is short and, uh, you know, there's no point in, in um, you know, uh, being emotionally challenged every day just to pursue this because there are a lot of good people out there who can do it for you and then you can go and do something else. Anyways, um, Enough said about that. Thank you, all of you, Bruno, Scott, Sam, and Mike, uh, for your questions. We love them. Keep them coming to send them to info at toptradersonplug.com. Let me, and by the way, uh, one thing I will more say to you as well, Bruno, uh, that I just forgot. Um, you're in a bit of luck because uh, when we talk about people who can really withstand volatility and drawdowns in this game the next week's guest he is phenomenal uh, to talk about this because he's been in the game for a very long time um great trend follower uh, and a good friend uh and that is salem abram so he's going to be on the show next weekend and uh you know just i'm sure there's going to be some gold nuggets for you uh, on this topic uh again next week so Keep the questions coming for Salem uh, next week uh, as well so that we can really dive into that. Let me run through this week's performance. Uh, of course, as usual, uh, it is as of Thursday evening. 
so that would be June 20th. Um, but it's so far been a pretty solid uh, month, year. Uh, beta 50 is up 3.05, uh, up 6.32 for the year. Uh, SockGen CT index up 3.35, up 5.64 for the year. SockGen trend index up uh, a whopping 4.29 for the month, up 9.05 for the year. SockGen short-term traders index up 1.67. Almost flat for the year now, slightly down. And the bridge alternatives up 3.19 for the month of June, up 7.13%. Although I will say, I'm pretty sure we're going to get back a little bit today, uh, Friday the 21st of June. So, any final thoughts uh, from you, Moritz, up in the mountains? From you, Jerry, in the sunny state of Florida? Any final thoughts? Not going to yodel anything, but um, happy trading and looking forward to speaking with uh, Salem next week. Absolutely. Yeah, Salem's uh, really funny, really insightful, and uh, really smart. And so it'll be a great podcast. It certainly will be. So, um, and of course, as always, if you like what you're hearing, then please help other people discover the show by leaving us a rating of rev and review. Ideally, five stars if you think we deserve it. And please share these episodes with your friends and like-minded uh, colleagues. Um, uh, we really do appreciate it. And it does help uh, a lot. So I'll com continue to, to ask you for this little favor. Uh, take a few minutes out to do so. From Jerry, Moritz and me, thank you so much for listening. And we look forward to being back with you on the next episode of the systematic investor as mentioned with our friend salem abraham and in the meantime have a great week thanks for listening to the systematic investor podcast series if you enjoy this series go on over to itunes and leave an honest rating and review and be sure to listen to all the other episodes from top traders unplugged if you have questions about systematic investing send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show and remember all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us and we'll see you on the next episode of the systematic investor